be here with you this morning. Oh, man. Actually, Evie, I need you to be wonderful and put this on for me. While my wife is putting this on, it's a little foamy, pimply puff that goes on the end of the microphone that keeps it from making too much noise that I lost, but now we got it, so we're ready to go this morning. Well, I am just blessed to be able to share God's word with you. Again, for those who are joining us online, thank you so much for being online. You're a part of the body here at Glad Tidings. Even if we can't see you, we know you're with us. And so we would just encourage you, let us know that you're attending, comment, say hello, say amen, say whatever you want to say. And uh, you can put some prayer requests in that chat line so that we can pray for you as well. Um, this morning, before I get into the message, I felt inclined, while this platform ought never to be used to discuss politics, I believe that there is something that as Christians we need to address. And as far as things have gone, we have a new president-elect that the likes of which we've never seen such divide in the, there's always divide for presidential elections and politics, there always is. But on paper, sociological studies have sh shown and, and, and proven that across the board, there has never been such divide in our country as there has been. And I say what, I'll say again what I've been saying for quite some time, that there are forces out there that are trying to manipulate your thinking, regardless of who you voted for. Listen, regardless, I'm not getting at a particular party that you should have voted for. Regardless of who you voted for, there are forces at work that were trying to achieve what has already happened. Division. Division. So where do we stand as a church? Well, let, let, me, let me just remind you that in God's word, prevalent throughout it, but especially we look to the New Testament to clearly answer this, every governing authority has been instituted by God. Now, I believe that regardless of whether or not that party or whatever governmental system is bearing out the word of God and obedience to it, God is still in control. And he will use either righteous or wicked government for his glory and to further his kingdom. So I believe that that Scripture cannot and will not be compromised because God is sovereign and he's in control. It doesn't matter who, you know, it, it really doesn't. So we look to Jesus's clear direction, specifically to his disciples when he was grilled about whether or not, hey, should we pay taxes? Do we really got to pay taxes? And when you really study that text, it was such, it, it was like that government, that Roman government, they were reaching inside of their pockets and robbing them blind. I mean, like, it doesn't even compare to taxes today when you really look at what they did. It was tax upon tax upon tax. They say, hey, Jesus, ought we really to pay this? You know that they're imposing upon us because of our ethnicity. Jews were more racially profiled in that day, and they were required to give more taxes. It's proven. That's why they hated tax collectors. So, Jesus, what do you think? Obviously, it's wrong, and obviously what they're doing is messed up. What do you think? Give me a coin, he says. Whose picture's on the coin? Caesar, right? The leader, right? Then you give what's owed him. In Matthew, in a different account, specifically about a temple tax, which is a little bit different, 
The disciples asked Jesus, and he says, we're not required to give it, but so as not to cause offense. Jesus, who could be extremely offensive and extremely countercultural, said we ought to give this so as not to cause offense. So I just take those two initially, the Caesar to what is Caesar's, and then that temple tax portion of Matthew. And I think it's really clear for us and how we ought to respond as Christians. God has instituted whoever's in government. Therefore, if we say we trust God, trust him. Believe in him. I don't care who took presidency. Our response ought to be the same no matter who's in that position. Trust God to do what he ought to do. I'm at peace. I, I really, I'm at peace. I'm okay. And, and let me tell you why I'm at peace. Never was a Trump fan, but I'm going to be honest with you, wasn't a Biden fan. Now I'm really getting into it, all right? I haven't actually named the names before. I'm not telling you who I voted for. Um, but objectively, now I need to address the second part. Give to God what is God's. Because that was said with the intention of understanding persecution will come which it did, and we know historically it did. It was already happening, and it increased. Jesus didn't get rid of it. It increased after he died, and so did the church. And so as a countermeasure, in order to prepare his followers for that impending persecution that was inevitable, he says, okay, but now you give to God what is God's. You who bear the very image of God on your life, that's not a coin. You give it to them. Don't cause offense. It's theirs. But your life belongs to God. Therefore, if anything that the government says that causes you to compromise what ought to be far weightier than what the government says, your, your image in, created in the image of God, your identity created in the image of God, then this is, this is really getting at I allow for civil disobedience. That's really what it's getting at. So. This isn't merit or license for you to say, I don't want to pay my taxes anymore because I have a belief that it's not congruent with Scripture. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about outright contradicting your faith. I have to address this, okay? Because I believe, I believe that it could happen, and I would be misusing my call and responsibility as a shepherd to shepherd the flock. Straight up. you got to hear me. Joe Biden openly talked about coming after religious organizations because he considers them to be advocates and open places for hate speech. Specifically defined within God's word. We will never spread true hate speech, but we will always spread truth and we will do so in a manner that is so consistent with love. But that being said, I don't know what the future holds for Christianity in America. It's only gotten worse over the years, and it really hasn't gotten better. I'm not here to say, be worried, you know, the world is coming to an end. No, what I said first still stands in accordance with God's word. He is sovereign. He's in control. He allowed everything to happen the way that it has happened, and I believe he's going to continue to do so. Here's how we need to respond. I believe that in this season, that if persecution does come or more trials come for Christian Christians in America, we ought to respond in such a manner of understanding that God is coming back. And I need to be ready because he's going to come in a thief like the night. 
And God, I truly believe that what as we were praying this morning at 930, like we do every Sunday, that the Lord was clearly saying to me that in regards to Christians, listen, Christians, this is going to be a season where the wheat and the chaff is clearly separated because there are going to be some Christians who close this when they know they ought to open this and who harden this when they know they ought to soften this. So for us as the church, you need to know God's in control. Pray for your president. Pray for people in positions of leadership. I, I can't help but laugh thinking about if the first century church, the very first church as we read in the book of Acts, saw us now, and some, some Christians who are, oh, the world is over, so-and-so's president, and oh, now we're, we're ruined. I can imagine them just saying, welcome to the club. This is when all of those scriptures that you love to quote about trusting in God through trial was supposed to be used. Not when you got a pay cut in your job and not when you're so, so and so in a relationship with you stopped favoring you or, you know, just fill in the blank. It was written within the context of persecution that was already present. The way the Roman government treated Jews and then Christians. Thank God that we're not being crucified and being lined up on Asbury Ave for everybody to see what happens to Christians who open their mouth. That's what happened in the Roman Empire in the first century church. So I'm just imagining the Christians of the first century kind of just laughing and saying, are you kidding me? You're worried? God's in control, church. Don't be worried. Pray. Pray for people in leadership. Pray for people in government. Four years from now, it's going to be a whole new story, and we're going to be, I'm, I'm sorry, but I feel like we're going to be right back where we started, and he's the devil, and he's the devil, or maybe she's the devil, and can we talk about God's word now? Please, can, can we, do, I wanted you to be encouraged, and no, here's how we ought to respond moving forth. Pray God's in control. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series called Freestyle, and our purpose throughout this series has been, here it is, to show the foe, your word, flow. I've said it the past two weeks. I'm going to say it again because I've been saying it. I am not a rapper, but as a pastor, I've got a flow. I should have a flow, and I think I do. So the flow that I want to share with you today is going to be coming specifically out of Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 23. Here in this portion of Scripture, we have Jesus who has now entered into the city of Jerusalem for his final few days on this earth. And I tell you what, some of the greatest opposition came at this time, which I kind of want us to really think about in this moment, specifically in how it applies to us. And that's this idea that it's not going to be up on the screen, but really our greatest opposition comes when we're on the precipice of fulfilling our purpose. Jesus was about, yeah, he had great three and a half years of ministry, but it was all just ramping and leading up for his crucifixion. That's why he came to die for us. And some of the greatest times happened before. But now during these last few days of his ministry, he enters into Jerusalem. He enters into the mouth of the lion. And the greatest difficulties now approach him and he faces. 
And we're going to look at one of those interactions that he has with a very significant influence to people. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. That's my sermon title, and it's just really short. It's just three words, and it's this. Interpretation or application? Interpretation or application? Let me illustrate before I delve into those, those two opposing words. My wife reminded me this morning, actually, about a very unfavorable uh, memory that I now have been reminded of, so thank you. Uh, when I was in college, I had a roommate who, for some reason, felt that it was extremely efficient, uh, or whatever, to use a toilet bowl scrubber to clean everything. He would clean his dishes. He would clean the shower. He would clean the floor. This was a really interesting guy. Now, I can't help but imagine what if this dude actually found out one day or thought to himself one day, well, hey, why not just, it's a brush, and rather than using a toothbrush, why don't I just use a toilet bowl scrub? You know, that, that's just, this was a really interesting character. God bless him. Um, but I was thinking about this, and I thought it's, it's amazing how we can take such such minuscule or small aspects of everyday life and we can misinterpret how they're to be used in such a way that fulfills whatever present need we have. Got to clean the dishes. Let me go get the toilet bowl scrubber. <laughs> I don't want to go out and get a, a Brillo scrub pad <laughs> or, or whatever. Oh, man. Um out of dish detergent soap, a little bit of Listerine on that sucker will take all the grease off. You know, I don't know. Might taste good afterwards. Might taste minty, but it, it just kind of provokes that thought process of why. But in regards to our Christian faith, there is one particular instrument that we need to employ proper interpretation of. In order for us to comply and live a life that is consistent with its imperatives and indicatives and declarations, that's the word of God. So, why is it so important that we employ proper interpretation for the sake of application when it comes to God's word? Let me give you an example. Let's approach it from the perspective of an unbeliever, which many of which today still argue, who are against Christianity, that the Bible is not a credible document. I do not have the time, but I've preached and I've taught on this, um, about the significance of the veracity or the dependability of the actual document, the very many manuscripts that were compiled. There, there's a whole process to this that is an ancient literary custom that has been used to compile books that have developed our modern philosophy today. And when you compare those standards of how those ancient philosophical documents of Homer and Plato and Aristotle were used to develop mindsets that we have today that are taught at collegiate levels, the same tools were used to interpret, develop the veracity of Scripture, the Bible. And it's amazing how much evidence far outweighs in favor of the Bible in comparison with these other ancient readily accepted documents. 
So I, I, can't, I cannot even begin. We don't have time to get into that. It's not what we're talking about. But that is an argument that people will use. Oh, you, you believe the Bible. That, 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 that's, that's just a bunch of, you know, hogwash. It's a, it's a bunch of garbage that a bunch of random uh, prejudiced individuals who are having a bad day decided to write you know, in a diary about, and you take that as the word of God. Oh, you pathetic, ignorant Christian, you. Um, and they like to point out specific things that maybe stand in contrast with the entirety of the word of God. Like You say Jesus is loving and sacrificial. Well, what about in Leviticus? And they love to go to Leviticus. And they love to quote how if you're this or you're this, then your Bible says that they ought to be put to death. Well, what about me? I do that. They're misinterpreting scripture by taking one specific point out of context of the whole which, mind you, I can't even answer in one sermon. I would need a series to discuss with you open-minded individuals about it, okay? It, it's taken me the better part of four years of undergraduate studies and now three years of graduate-level study to be able to actually even have a working understanding of how extensive this is. And I always use the example, you don't go to a doctor and feel comfortable going to that doctor if you found out that he got his certification through an eight-hour Google uh, uh, training session and how'd you do your first surgery? I found a cat, you know. You, you wouldn't trust, sorry cat lovers, you wouldn't trust if a doctor came to you with that level of credentials. You trust the years of extensive study and research that he's put into it. I'm not using that as an example to say, oh, look at me. I'm saying, it's a big deal to actually study God's word, and it takes a lifetime of dedication to unpacking it. So that's just maybe an example of an unbeliever. Let's now go to the believer who has either trouble rectifying certain scriptures in light of other scriptures, or let me be more particular and say a believer who for the sake of personal application for a present need that they have in their life, takes a scripture and misapply, misinterprets it and misapplies it. Let me give you a very, very readily used example. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13. I don't think I can take another day of that individual's angry, utter belittlement of my life. I cannot stand the sight of them, the way that they treat me. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Thank you, Jesus. You want to know what Paul is talking about there? Contentment in the face of persecution. Contentment in the face of persecution. But this is a good verse, and I want to slap it on my fridge or slap a bumper sticker on my car. It's not that that's not a true statement, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you in the face of any type of persecution, any type face of uh, problems. It really becomes a problem when you make it about fulfilling your dreams. It really becomes a problem when we try to apply that with, I just want to start this company, or I, I just want to make it into there, I just want to win this, this lottery, not <laughs> whatever. Uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Then you've really had a problem with misinterpretation there. It's not that maybe sometimes that we can take scripture and broaden our range of application and, and, and really draw those implications there. But it really becomes a problem when now we've adopted this practice of taking 
a very specific portion of scripture that God intends for a very specific portion of your life that he knows you're going to need at a particular season of life. And now you've trivialized it. It's like a, a, a prize out of a box of Cracker Jacks. And now it holds no significant weight when you actually come up against that problem because now you've misinterpreted it and allowed it to become applicable to every season of life. It holds no weight for you, which is why I believe so many times Christians come to me saying, I don't get the word of God. I'm not receiving from the word of God. I feel God speaking to me in the word of God. It's because you haven't adopted or challenged yourself or readied yourself to interpret God's word before applying God's word. So we're going to get into here Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to take a look at a group of individuals who were very well trained and who were somewhat, as we're going to see, haughty and arrogant in their position, specifically as it pertains to their knowledge about the written word of God. They're known as the Sadducees. In the New Testament, we have two groups of people that Jesus readily comes up against in opposition. Um, it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We talk about the Pharisees a lot as those hypercritical, um, you know, fire and brimstone legalistic individuals uh, who say it ought to be this, it ought to be this. You're not living good enough. You ought to be like us. Look at the way we do it. Do it like us. And Jesus calls them out for that. But we have another group that 14 times are mentioned in the New Testament, seven of which, half of which are in the book of Matthew. The Sadducees. The Sadducees were much more politically savvy individuals. They were individuals that really were deep in the pockets of the Roman government. So they had in mind keeping government happy and doing whatever I need to in my Jewish circle of religion to make sure that they're happy and that our people aren't doing anything to make those people unhappy. It's interesting. Okay, let's read. Verse 23 says this. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and, underline this, raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died. And since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, here's the question. At the resurrection, said before they didn't believe in the resurrection. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. So let me first make a point, and then we're going to talk about what we just read. The first point is this. This was not a question of illumination, but of humiliation. The Sadducees did not come to Jesus with sincerity of heart, trying to rectify an incongruency in their faith, saying, Jesus, I just don't get this. Help me understand it. That's not the attitude that they came in. They came in the attitude of, let's see what he's got. Let's, let, let, let's see him answer this one. We all know it bet he can't that's that's their attitude so specifically let's talk a little bit more about these sadducees first off the sadducees as we said were very politically savvy individuals um and 
more of what I said now is the fact that they had a developed theology that was solely and only based on the written word. So as far as we know, that by this time, it was possibly only the first five books of the Bible. Might have been more. Might have been some of the Psalms and the Proverbs and that which they had. Maybe some of the Chronicles and Kings, stories about David. But really, they developed their belief system, their theology and their doctrines only on what was written. This is interesting because this is somewhat what we do today. But we're not going to get into that. As opposed to the Pharisees, Jesus' other enemies, who did believe in the resurrection, and they believed in something called oral tradition. Something that was readily practiced for hundreds and hundreds of generations, not just within Jewish society, but was practiced amongst the world. It was really like, let's get around the dinner table and let me tell you about our ancestors. Let me tell you about what our, your grandfather and your grandfather and your grandfather went through. That was readily practiced. And something we can't comprehend today because our minds can't, aren't as developed really like these individuals hundreds of years ago were, where they could remember extensive history because it was just ingrained in their culture for years. We've allowed that to kind of degenerate to the point where we got to look it up in Google. We got to take a note. Otherwise, we forget everything. Speaking of myself above all else, these Sadducees didn't adopt that practice. They said there's too much room, kind of ironic, for interpretation when you develop theology based off of speaking around the dinner table of what happened throughout the generations. So they said, we only go to what is written. Again, I'm not going to address that. But they're coming against Jesus with a very limited perspective. And they're saying that within the written word of what we have in the first maybe five books of the Bible, it never talks about resurrection. But you are going around talking about the coming kingdom and how the dead will rise. And the Pharisees sure believe that as well. But let's discredit you because obviously the Sadducees don't forget we're not in favor of anybody who was causing trouble to the Roman government. Of which Jesus was not that bad because he was saying pay your taxes, um, but obviously stood for things that were contrary to the belief system that was perpetuated by the Roman government. And the Sadducees don't like that. And so they come at Jesus and they try to discredit him. They try to supplant him. They try to plant seeds of doubt within Jesus' own mind of, hey, you believe this, but prove it. Show me. And what's interesting, in this scenario that they provided, this one brother dies, the wife marries, uh, the next brother marries the wife, and so on. This is actually a cultural custom that was practiced even without outside of Jewish culture, but specifically is mentioned in the first five books of the Bible. It's a custom that was practiced and afforded and talked about in, once again, the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to write it down, it's Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 6. And in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, we see how the Sadducees, in their quotation of it, in their use of it, they're not condemning the practice or the custom, but the congruency of it with resurrection. So they're saying, hey, we don't have a problem about, you know, the brother dying and then another brother coming and marrying the wife and so on and so forth. We don't have a problem with that. We're for that. But we've got a problem 
with the resurrection theology that you have. Because nowhere in scripture is it written that the dead will rise. So, at the resurrection, you got to really see there, there's a lot of sarcasm here because they don't believe it. They're trying to really throw Jesus under the bus. At the resurrection, if there even is one, prove it. Because obviously, there's such a problem here. Because on earth, you can't have multiple, you can't have multiple uh, husbands or vice versa wives. You know, you, that, that's not right. So in heaven with God, obviously we have a sinful problem. How is that going to be rectified? It's an interesting attitude. Before I move into Jesus' answer, I just really want to point out something about the Sadducees that I started with, and let me just bring it back. The Sadducees were more concerned with political affairs than kingdom affairs. The attitude, I believe, while not written here, of approach from the Sadducees, why they went to Jesus, and why they even wanted to come against him and challenge his, his theological prowess and the purpose of his ministry, why would they even do it? I really believe it's because they wanted to undermine him because he stood for what worked against their own preferences. They were all about keeping their Roman constituents happy and making sure that they got a cut of the pie. Jesus stands against that. Therefore, we need to silence that. People of God, do not be silenced in speaking the word of God in all truth and in all situations and in all adversity. Not for any person, not for any group, not for any people, not for any ideology. Do not compromise the integrity of the word of God. No matter how much it might benefit you in this world. Jesus' response. He replied, you are in error. You need to underline that phrase right there, in error. Because you do not know the scriptures. I'd also underline that. Or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, look at this. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the living God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Second point, track with me. Jesus contends with both their attitude and their argument. Because, listen, Jesus recognizes what we talked about, the motivation behind why they even approach him because of their political preference and being more concerned with politics rather than kingdom affairs. And he addresses their attitude first. And in that first statement, he says, you are in error. Literally means you have strayed from the path. That's important. You have strayed from the path. In other words, you were on the right path. You knew you were on the right path, but you have willfully strayed from that path. That's what the interpretation of in error means according to its original language. 
then he addresses the fact that they have allowed a particular understanding of what Scripture says to develop into something that they would prefer it means based on, listen to me, the way that they live life in this world. You know how I make the joke? I've made the joke here, I think, about twice about how much I love Chick-fil-A. And when I'm in heaven, I'm praying and believing there's going to be a Chick-fil-A on, on every corner of every golden road. That's a fun little thing to have, you know, hopes and dreams for. Who knows? God might do that. But let me tell you something. That, that, that's that's a, what is literally known as a pre-understanding or, or uh, a preconceived notion that I have now imposed upon what the kingdom of God is, that which I have no idea what it's going to be like. I cannot imagine the beauty and the holiness and the bliss of being in the kingdom of God. And it's not a bad thing for me to have some ideas, but it becomes a bad thing when I impose upon it and I say it ought to be this way without realizing that because of a past influence of my life, whether it comes from culture whether it comes from my environment, my family environment, my work environment, whether it comes from pop culture, you know, whatever it is, all of that inevitably influences us. It becomes a problem when we allow preconceived supposition or that pre-understanding to impose itself upon, well, then this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And Jesus knows that that's the attitude that has employed itself by the Sadducees, because they come to him with an attitude, not of true desire of help us understand this because we can't rectify it. It's, we don't like this guy. We got to take him down. So let's show an obvious fault because we know, we know the resurrection, it's not a real thing. Obviously, he's wrong, and we're not open to have a conversation about why we might be wrong. So let's go to him and let's entrap him. And Jesus said, I already know why you guys are coming. I know why you're here. And he says something very specific. He says, the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they will be like the angels. And what he's specifically getting at there is the kingdom of heaven is of a different order than the kingdom of this earth. And while you enjoy and should enjoy things like marriage on, during your time on this earth, do not even begin to conceive the fact that it has to be in heaven as it, in on earth, as it is on earth. That's not the way it works. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not in heaven as it was on earth. So Jesus addresses their attitude and says, you're already coming at it from an illegitimate perspective. And this is going to develop in all of your followers. They were also on the high priestly court, Sadducees, which means they had regular influence on everyday individuals, a part of the Jewish community who are coming to hear and to learn and to live right. He says, listen, you're going to give them and impart to them an illegitimate understanding of what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And so he addresses that. Too often, people bring their presuppositions and their pre-understanding to the table of interpretation. Listen, we impose, you see it all the time, I do it. We impose our own cultural upbringing, our own preferences, and influence upon God's word. And when we're looking to it to find answers and help and guidance and to discern the will of God, 
His will becomes utterly skewed because we've allowed the past to try and twist God's arm with what he says in his word in order to fit our own present circumstance. And when it doesn't work, then we say, God, you failed me. God, you're just not working. He's like, I've been trying to show you, but you just don't listen. You don't want to listen because you think that what you came from supersedes where I have you. You think that where you want to be is greater than where I have you. You think that your parents are God as opposed to me. Can I tell you something? I love my parents. They are not God. They make mistakes. They've said things that, you know, aren't of the will of God before. They're your parents have done the same, you know, heads up. Your children aren't going to be the angels that you thought you gave birth to. They're going to have problems. They are not Jesus Christ incarnate. And so don't try and impose upon them uh, 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 an expectation that they should be. And then when they fail to, don't condemn them in a way that they never should have. They're human just like you and I, and we can go down the list. Whatever political leaning you have is not an infallible word of truth and is not the word of God. What you read on social media, I'm going to say that until I'm blue in the face because that seems like all that people get their information from. It's clickbait. That's a real thing. you got to research it. Don't let Facebook or Instagram or Google Google, don't let that be your primary source. If you do, you are being so twisted into a mindset that you ought not to have. And that's not a perspective from one political party to another. That's somebody right in the kingdom of God. And I'm not perfect, but that's somebody in the kingdom of God saying, listen, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. You need to listen to him. So don't impose on the word of God anything that ought not to be imposed. God wants to work through the totality of your being. That means your cultural upbringing. He doesn't want you to sacrifice that. He doesn't want you to not be who you are. He doesn't want you to stop enjoying the things that you enjoy so long as they're not sinful. He doesn't say you can't do those things. He's saying don't allow those things to supersede my word for your life. It's all about this lens that we adopt. Okay, but he's not done yet. And this is where I think it's really powerful. Verse 24. I told you to underline a phrase in verse 24. This was a part of their original question to Jesus. Verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up. I told you to underline that very specifically because the verb in the original Greek language used by the Sadducees here is very closely connected in syntax with the word resurrection. So individuals who don't believe in the resurrection are approaching Jesus with a question about resurrection, but they still can't help themselves in staying true to their own particular worldview, that there is no resurrection. So we're going to speak his language, and they even say the word resurrection, but when we talk about raising up, we're going to try to marry the two. We're going to try to take a mindset and a belief about resurrection that obviously isn't true according to them. And we're going to speak it, but we're going to do so in such a way that it makes sense. Newsflash, 
I cannot begin to make sense about the resurrection. I can't. Scientifically, I can't prove it. Nobody can. But we believe it. It's upon which our entire faith hinges. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Triumphing over death. They use the language in order to make it seem understandable. In order to make it comprehensible. Here's what's happening. The Sadducees say to Jesus, Jesus, if there is a resurrection, then maybe your idea of a resurrection really can be explained through, ready, ancestors. Because that was the purpose of the custom. When, I, if I died, according to the custom, my brother would have to come and marry my wife Specifically, here's the reason. It, it's not really, it, it's a part of it, but it's not really for her betterment, unfortunately, in that custom. It wasn't so that she would be cared for. It was kind of there, but not really. The main purpose was so that me as a deceased man, my lineage would carry on. That was the purpose of the custom, so that I would not cease to exist. My lineage. The Sadducees are coming to Jesus and saying, well, your idea of resurrection really isn't there. But we'll concede to the idea of a resurrection within which we can explain in a biological, scientific manner. Yeah, in a sense, people are resurrected through the carrying on of their offspring. You see what's happening here? Stay with me. Jesus contends specifically and firstly in verse 29 that you are in error because, listen, you do not know the scriptures. Which is the very thing that they came to Jesus with in order to prove their point. And he's calling them out saying, you have misinterpreted it. You've missed it. And then he doesn't finish there. And he says very specifically, or you're in error. You have strayed from your understanding of how you ought to view the power of God. And this is in direct relation to the resurrection. So he goes, I know what you're doing. You're trying to make logically comprehensible the idea of resurrection in a way that you and I can just easily put our heads to bed at night and say, yep, see, science explains it. You can't do that with the power of God. Listen to me, God is a logical God. And there's, there is plenty within Scripture that is scientific that is explained. But the author of Hebrews wasn't just, you know, speaking out of the side of his mouth when he said, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because there's an aspect of our finitude, our finiteness as created beings that we cannot begin to understand about an incomprehensible God. Because his ways are above our ways. He's beyond our ways. If we were to explain God fully, we would be God. And there's no hope in that. Why would I care to want to be in eternity with something that I'm just as equal to? Why would it matter? It's for our benefit. Not to keep us in the dark. Not to say, oh, I'm afraid if they learn a little bit too much. It's like, you, you can. You can. So Jesus contends that God's resurrection power isn't limited to producing offspring, as the Sadducees were saying it was. And then this is, this is the capstone. Jesus quotes Exodus. Chapter 3, verse 6, in his final statement to them. He says, you don't even know the word of God. 
that you claim to know. Verse 31, but about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? This is very strong language because the you there isn't isn't plural in the sense of just in general, the word of God written to people. It's very specifically dedicated to his opponents. He's saying God's word in this moment is for you. So you need to hear it and you need to listen to it, Sadducees. I am the God of Abraham. Implication here carrying with the grammar. I am the God of Isaac and I am the God of Jacob. He just quoted a well-known phrase that God had spoken to Moses. Speaking of ancestry. But he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, and then at some point later on, the God of Isaac, and then following him, the God of Jacob. And what's amazing here, track with this, Jesus is specifically speaking to the very line of reasoning for the Sadducees' argument. Resurrection might be understandable if it's limited to ancestry and offspring. Jesus says, let me show you what God did through offspring. Yes, he did give Abraham a son, Isaac, and Isaac a son, Jacob, that obviously carried on the names. But he said in his revelation to Moses, I am, which implies that they are alive. And they have been resurrected from the grave. The Sadducees relied strictly on the written word with false motivation and a misplaced attitude to further their own selfish gain. Jesus, in his response to their contention, uses nothing but the word of God. He could have used so much more. He could have said, you really don't want to believe in resurrection? Did you not hear about the story of my friend Lazarus? But I'm not going to even go there. I'm just going to speak in the language that you want to speak because you think you know God's word. But let me show you the truth of God's word in a way that everybody needs to understand. And the result is the fact that Jesus leaves the Sadducees and all of the people around speechless. Church, please, please, please listen to me. We need to stop interpreting scripture based on our limited capacity to comprehend the power of God. We're okay with following God and what his word says so long as it is within my own capacity to accomplish it. Or explain it. Or comprehend it. But in that moment of self-centeredness, we miss sight of the fact that we have a mighty, great, incomprehensible God that shrouds us far beyond anything we could ask, seek, or imagine and says, I am with you, I am for you, and I'm working in the situation of your life beyond the likes of which you can even begin to understand or describe. It's my power. And in that one moment, Jesus leaves them and everybody else around listening speechless because they thought they knew it. See, ultimately, they thought nowhere is the word resurrection found in the Old Testament. Nowhere. Therefore, it holds no credibility. Jesus says, yes, it is. It's there. 
It's not explicitly stated the way that you want it to. Your preconceived notions, your presuppositions, your pre-understandings imposed upon God's word will force you to miss the truth of God's word that wants to give you life. So here's my final flow. This is what I believe a final flow is that we can really summarize Jesus said to the Sadducees. You ready? My dedication to interpretation means this interrogation is over. The Sadducees came with ill intent and started grilling Jesus with an interrogation to support his own claims about the things that he professed to believe and live and which he was the bodily representation of the truth the word of God incarnate. They came against that to interrogate and humiliate them, not to seek illumination. They left there understanding that Jesus' dedication to fully interpreting the word of God in all of its truth and not in simple isolation from the entirety of it was going to leave them humiliated themselves. My dedication to interpretation means this interrogation is over. That's what you can say to the enemy. Listen, but you, you can't just say it and expect it to go away. You've you, you got to seek to be a disciple of Jesus. You have to seek to be a student of the word of God. I believe that there is such power in the word of God that sometimes it's only a verse and that's all it needs. But it can't just be a checklist of Daily, oh, I read my psalm. Oh, I read my New Testament scripture. Oh, I read my Old Testament scripture. What did it say to you? What did God intend to say to you through that text? And you might say, this is where I am lacking, Pastor. I don't have the ability to do that. I'm going to tell you, this is why Sunday is so important. This is why Bible study is so important. This is why eventual small groups are so important to give you the tools necessary to live the life that God wants you to live, to be able to live it in accordance with his word. But you're just going to keep going in this cyclical motion of, I feel good, I feel good, I feel good, boom, like the hamster. Now you're stuck just going in the wheel because you fell and you can't get up and you don't know why because I'm going to the word of God and the word of God is supposed to be my all-sufficient truth that helps me and gives me life and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and the attitudes of man's heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight, but I just don't get it. God, where are you? This wasn't necessarily a really fiery, feel-good message today that I gave you, but it was a message of substance. It was a message that I hope equips you with the tool set to better live for the Lord in such a way that he wants you to live righteously, holy, fully abiding in him and knowing what that means. So remember, when you choose to be a student of God's word and you choose to truly say, God, you know, there are some things that I can't rectify in Leviticus, maybe in Revelation, or maybe right here in one of Paul's epistles in the New Testament, or maybe in King David's life. I, I don't, I like this part, but I don't know what to do with that. It makes me uncomfortable. It upsets me. I just can't explain it. My friends brought it up to me, and I don't know what to do with it. I'm good, but they're not. And I, Wherever you're at, rather than saying, okay, I give up, I'm done. Obviously, there must not be credibility to this whole Christian thing. Be a student. Be a disciple. Be a disciple. 
then when you choose to do that, you're going to be able to fully stand in the face of the enemy when that temptation, when that adversity comes, and you're going to be able to say, my dedication to interpretation means, Satan, that this interrogation is over. I don't need to have anything to do with this conversation. That's what we saw Jesus do. He speaks it back to them. It's like a drop-the-mic moment, walks away, I'm done. And they just stand there, mouths open, because of what they just witnessed. Would you stand with me on your feet this morning? Jesus. Jesus. Lord, I thank you for your word that we've heard this morning. I thank you for the integrity of it. I thank you for the truth of it, and I thank you for its purpose. Lord, I understand that at times we might misinterpret it, we might misuse it, we might misunderstand it, but God, it doesn't change the infallibility and the absoluteness of its integrity. And regardless of how we might miss it, or lose it, or forget it, or reject it, it still stands. And Lord, it has vast implications for us. Lord, I pray that we would not be so willing to undermine and discredit it. Lord, I pray for the world out there that's so willing to undermine and discredit what they can't understand, and more importantly, what they have not taken the time to understand. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that would take time to understand so much more, Lord. I pray that this would be a springboard, Lord, for this season of such division in our country where we would say, just as with the word of God and my relationship with God, I pray that I would take more time to understand my relationship with others, people I don't understand, cultures I don't understand, political positions I don't understand, preferences I don't understand, patterns I don't understand. I don't, Lord, I don't even care if they're sinful. Help us as your people to be willing to understand them so that we can better help people in them. Nobody wants... Nobody wants to listen to us if we're not willing to listen to them. So, God, give us listening ears and give us listening hearts. Let us be learners of your word and of your creation and of your people. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for all that you've been accomplishing in the midst of glad tidings. I thank you for this people. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bring restoration. You would bring hope. You would bring healing. Lord, we trust you. You are on the throne. You are our hope, our help, our sufficiency in all times. So, Jesus, I thank you. Lord, be with us as we leave this place. Watch over your people. Protect us. And in Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Hey,